Hello, you're listening to Film Grays. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're here today to talk about a really brilliant filmmaker, Kelly Reichart, whose new film, First Cow, is kind of out. Yeah, still not out here, but it's been out in America since July, I think. I think even before. Given like its wide US release during the pandemic as like a digital release, but like not afforded that here. It's not on like Kurt's on or some shit. No, I think it's like an awards for your consideration sort of marketing campaign. But it's way better than the other big awards film that I watched the other day. More on which later. Sam, were you particularly familiar with Kelly Reichardt? I know we talked about Meek's Cut-Off briefly on the John Ford mm. episode. Well, yeah, Meek's Cut-Off was the only one I'd seen before we decided to put this episode together. That's from 2010. Her career started in 1994 with this film River of Grass, like a sort of Jarmusch style like indie there were a bunch of bangers to catch up on basically meek's got off as he said i watched in the context of like a bunch of ford films meek's cut off and first cow are her two i guess explicit sort of westerns meek's cut off in the wagon master mold and first cow in the sort of mccabe and mrs miller mode absolutely honestly both amazing films but her whole filmography is really interesting and we're going to cover all of her films today it's a really interesting career. She had a really big gap between River of Grass and Old Joy, mm. which was the first film of hers that I'd seen, mostly because of a band I haven't thought about in like 10 years, Nora and the Whale, but also I'm a big fan of Bonnie Prince Billy. Mm. He plays the main character, yeah. She made a Super 8 film called Ode, which is an adaptation of uh, Bobby Gentry's classic country single Ode to Billy Joe, not the only film adaptation of that song, which is pretty illuminating. That was the only film that she managed to complete in the years between River of Grass and Yeah, I mean, Old it's Joy. 50 minutes long, um, and you can only watch it in, like, a truly dire copy at the moment, I think. On Vimeo, yeah. It's in parts on um, YouTube, but part one isn't there because they used a cue from uh, the greatest album of all time, The Basement Tapes by Bob Dylan and the band. There's about 15 seconds of Apple Suckling Tree. As uh, rhythm on Discord users know, no Bob Dylan music is on YouTube. There's also Wendy and Lucy, which is a masterpiece, I would say. Mm. Can't wait to talk about that. And Night Moves with Jesse Eisenberg and mm. Dakota Fanning. Sort of ecological thriller, which is on movie right now. Oh, is it? Yeah. Did we mention uh, Certain Women? Uh, Certain Women is also a fantastic film. That was the one she made before First Cow. It's a proper one every three years style filmography with, as you said the 12-year gap between River of Grass and Old Joy. The 21st century has been uh, fruitful for Kenny Reichardt. Favourite American filmmaker of the last decade are just going to come out and yeah, say Yeah, I'm now. not sure what the competition is, really. The BFI had a retrospective of all her films projected when Certain Women came out. Certain Women also won Best Feature at the London Film Festival, but didn't get much distribution still, shockingly. Cause it's a huge mm. film really big uh great like ensemble film you know with a mad cast yeah with some yeah superstars i think we're going to talk about first cow to start with yeah definitely i mean i am pretty gassed about it let's get into it so first cow kelly rycott's new film is a it's a western set in Oregon in the early 19th century. It's adapted from her frequent collaborator Jonathan Raymond's novel The Half-Life. Haven't read any of his stuff. 
me neither, sadly. The short stories from Livability, another collection by Jonathan Raymond, upon which Old Joy and Wendy and Lucy are based, are available as like a PDF on the DVD-ROM version of Wendy and Lucy. I have very bizarre linkage in a charity shop in Tulse Hill for a quid. Great. Love when stuff like that happens. But I haven't fired up my disk drive to do it. I'd like to read it, though, because it sounds like she's done quite a lot of interesting stuff in relation to the adaptations, made a lot of interesting choices. Yeah, I regret that we can't really subject the films to that sort of analysis today. But as you said, Old Joy, Wendy and Lucy, he wrote the screenplay for Meek's Cutoff. They co-wrote Night Moves. Mm -hmm. And yeah, First Cow is adapted from this novel. It's about a... (laughs) I mean, it's subversive in, like, many ways. It's about, like, a Jewish guy and a Chinese guy that basically start a bakery enterprise in a frontier town. Because the eponymous first cow in the region, which is brought over from, like, Paris and is owned by uh, the local, what's he called, the Chief... Factor, is that what it's called? Chief, yeah, the Chief Factor, played by Toby Jones, is his cow, but Cookie... The character played by John Magaro starts like surreptitiously milking it by night to make these amazing sort of donut treats for the fur trappers. Westerns can't often be called uh, like sweet or like cute, but these are terms that came to mind when I was watching this film. It's just extremely endearing. Another thing that's remarkable about it is that it achieves that despite being so couched in death. It's framed with this sort of modern day opening where Alia Shawcat finds a pair of bodies in like a shallow grave by a riverbank and then through like a really nice cutaway actually where it's all these like nature shots and then there's just like a hand picking mushrooms and then we're in the 1820s or whatever with these like pioneers if you've seen the Migos t-shirt video, they're dressed kind of like these guys. Or, <laughs> or The Revenant, uh, a contemporary document. Um, yeah, it's interesting because The Half-Life is like a 500-page novel largely set in China. And then some of it is also set in the present day, I guess, with the maybe character. Sorry, I, <laughs> I just, it just happens. It just happens naturally. I think a lot of it is also set in the present day but she made a sort of radical decision to focus on this bakery enterprise, which is like two chapters in the novel. It opens with this um, beautiful William Blake quote. I think it's from Songs of Experience about friendship and nature. Great. Foregrounding these really interesting Yeah, themes. those are the central themes. It is a bromance. Definitely. But one thing I would say, you said sweet and cute. Yeah. But it's not twee at all no compared to something like jim jarmusch's dead man which i would describe as like really quite twee also a great film yeah i think reichardt's films all straddle that line in an interesting way because i do associate like 90s and early 21st century american film indie films that is with like an overbearing tweeness which is hard to abide really definitely (laughs) but yeah these films all avoid that Sort of a myth machine movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, after that Blake quote at the beginning, there's a mad first shot of like an industrial container ship like passing through like a static shot of this river in the Oregon wilderness. Fucking love it. Which again is like a perfect metaphor for like the encroaching 
colonial logic of the period it's representing and of like time as well this is it it's a film about proto-capitalism and it opens with like a shot in the modern day it kind of reminds me of james benning sort of we'll talk about him more later but it's exquisitely framed so the very top of this like industrial ship is on the same line with the further bank of the river just an incredible shot honestly an incredible way to open a film all of these films have amazing openings but this is like best shot i've seen in the young year of 2021 yeah i guess she has a sort of proclivity for that sort of opening shot just thinking wendy and lucy starts with like a shot of a depot with trains like sort of cleaving this like natural landscape and certain women has the exact same thing with a mad mad shot i guess because it's shot on 16 mil that one in the it looks like a painting with the natural light as well and the train is just coming from the background to the foreground and there's a huge mountain range in the background i think it's really interesting with her movies because they're clearly storyboarded right Mm. they're clearly like determined ahead of coming to the camera yeah i think location scouting is like such an important aspect of these films yeah that's just what i was about to say like before her her dog Lucy, who has now sadly passed away, uh, a real movie star, they would just drive around America. This is like the stuff she loves to talk about in interviews is like the amount of time she spent in her car, just like location scouting for every single one of these movies. That also really relates to the sort of Fordian quality of her work as well. 100%. Of like really trying to sort of live the land and experience the sort of space that is then being committed to film or sort of narrativized, which is so present in all of these films. And the first shot of First Cow really sums it up. I think we're talking about both forms of Fordism with her work, actually. <laughs> sure. You know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, yeah. First Cow, like, really anticipates and, like, reckons with capital and labor, as do all of these films, but they are also extremely john fordian in having poetic dialogue and a huge sense of like place and landscape but it's not as mythological as john ford's movies there in fact it's probably more likely to be compared to like neorealism yeah for sure i mean they're both narratively elliptical and they don't have that much of a didactic quality a lot of these are political films but they come from the side i guess rather than being like really clearly ideological projects or like commemorations of like heroism they're like fractured experiences you know absolutely maybe this is just my thing but i was so aware of marx when i was watching this film more than most american films ever i think well for sure i guess because it's set in the 19th century and toby jones's character is like such a classic like archetypal top hat wearing guy like standing among like you know the wretched of the earth basically who can barter well, he's got he's got wallpaper and stuff you know? yeah 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 but this is a guy that can do deals with a pen and everyone else has to pay for things by pulling buttons off of their jacket or you know using other forms of like crude uh, like fiat money proto currency or whatever which is not something that you you see Americans talk about so much but what I would say is like Jordan Cronk wrote a really brilliant feature in film comment about this film which is entitled coin of the realm and it is all about this sort you know in a way that a lot of westerns are I said it's not mythological but it is like foundational and it exists Mm. before like the dollar I think is a really crucial thing Mm. there's a real awareness in the first sequence where they meet Toby Jones's character where they're kind of having him on because they're like encouraged to name their price 
mm. to him, which is fascinating. Just to talk about labor relations. I think like labor yeah. is like visualized in literally every single one of these films. There's a bit in uh, Wendy and Lucy right at the start where you see her entire budget in like banknotes, which reminded me of Godard's Tuvar Bien, which has an incredible opening credit sequence where you just see the whole budget of the film. Great. Of like checks signed by all these companies <laughs> that he literally had. I guess they're the real checks that are like in the background as you see the credits which i think is just hilarious but also serious in terms of how first cal deals with that then the protagonists are like literally doomed from from the start their enterprise no matter how successful it is it's like illicit because it's predicated on you know using stolen milk and the way that's juxtaposed with um toby jones's character who's like in control is so central he's such a fool right or at least he is for like 85% of the movie. Yeah, and that's like part of the sort of tragedy of, uh, (laughs) I guess, Reichardt's critique of capitalism, you know, Mm -hmm. that like this guy is like almost like a yes man and just like a bit of a fash, but like completely unexceptional in pretty much every respect is, is the point. But like he's still in that position of power. Compared to the really fearsome like fur trappers that Cookie is working for at the start, he's their cook. I don't think we've uh, made that explicit. Mm. Who are really, really threatening. And the film, despite being pretty placid, like most of our other films, most of them have like a lot of tension. This one becomes a thriller for about 15 minutes towards the end. Mm. And it's incredibly tightly wound and like anxious. I think because you you meet their skeletons before you meet the actual characters. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that just prefigures the whole story and the way you receive it, I think. Uh, I think it's actually just masterfully constructed. And as you said, the pace is just mad as well. And the way that relates to its sort of genre feels. But so much of it is beautiful, contemplative, interiority. (laughs) I guess like shared interiority or like because it's a bromance, you know. And so much of it relates to like their space, which is ultimately like destroyed by the evil capitalist or his cronies. That shit is just, like, Japanese, you know, like, window framing, and I guess that's Fordian as well. No, I really wanted to talk about that as well. It did remind me of Ozu at times, for that reason. Also, I think it's important to note, like, animals are, like, absolutely central to every single one of these movies. The cow's trajectory, where you see the titular cow, I can't remember the name, initially framed in these, like, beautiful shots, and the last time you see the cow, it's, like, in an enclosure. Mm. All of these, like, you know, sort of primitive elements of capital. Mm. You look 200 years into the future. I mean, this film's set 200 years ago. The foundations of so many things about Western society are, like, made very, very explicit in this film. Look, if you think about cows or beef in America now, the only thing that comes to mind for me is, like, really aggressive deforestation and, like, industrial meat farming. Have you seen Cowspiracy? <laughs> Is that what it's about? Check it out, folks. But yeah, the way I guess that this like is like the first step in that like utter corruption of nature is just... This is an incredibly profound film, man. Mm. And it also is probably indie rock culture wise the most adjacent to like Phil Graves, the band. A soundtrack by William Tyler, one of my favourite musicians. He absolutely killed it with this. Mm. Um, I think it's the first time he's ever done a film score, even though a lot of people compare his brilliant albums like Modern Country to film scores anyway they're Mm. not but the score is brilliant it's really spellbinding just like the incidental music that first transition to the past there's like a really nice like sort of twinkling theme and ah they did it have you listened to much of his music 
Nah, I've got to get involved, I guess. I think you'd fight with it. You might find it a bit boring, but I'd really, really love it. Um, and he's also got one brilliant bit of music is uh, played by Stephen Maltmus from Pavement on like a broken fiddle. Sounds like, I don't know, he never made music that nasty, even in early, pa- even like <laughs> uh, Maybe Maybe or You're Killing Me or the old shit. It's never as like rough as the bit he's playing in this. And yeah, he's just, you know, looking very skeletal in like, I guess, period accurate costume. And he's like a Portland figure, right? There's We're going to encounter more. We're going to talk about Bonnie Prince Billy and Yola Tango and these sorts of people. But yeah, the presence of Stephen Maltmus is just one of the many, many, many things that really raised a smile. Yeah, I think just the, the way music was used in general was amazing. I thought that was great because like it was just a sort of diegetic way of bringing music into that setting, which is so godforsaken and underdeveloped at that sort of stage in its history. It did make me think of McCabe and Mrs. Miller in which like a settlement really does just like emerge out of these woods um, and everything's made out of logs and it's all very sort of dialectical in that sort of signs and meaning sense, you know? Sure. I love Leonard Cohen's songs in McCabe and Mrs. Oh, Miller, but yeah, they are kind of... Uh... Incongruous. I think it works really well. Sorry, I have more to say about the music. No, um, I think just the way that violin functions is really cool. And also, there's a bit of a mouth harp where the trappers are walking through the, the woods, and one of them's playing a mouth harp. And I just thought that was such a different way of sort of conceptualizing that as like a milieu to like the revenant, right? Where these guys are like gruff, but like they're playing a mouth harp. Whereas like in the revenant, it's like also self-serious and like mythological the use of music was like really clever throughout actually i would rank like first cow way above then the migos video then the revenant like way way down (laughs) yeah we didn't really talk about king lou who is an amazing character yeah i think that's such an important aspect he's so perceptive like some of the things he says are like unbelievable and it's not just like you know bait like confucianism that you often see like Mm. chinese migrant characters no matter when American film is set that's often what it is right Mm. I'm not talking about seven women but I'm talking about like countless countless examples but yeah he says stuff like history hasn't found this place yet yeah I love that shit and I think it's interesting you know I guess like Cookie is of like Russian extraction as well right and the idea of like the Eastwood not Clint Eastwood but like Eastward (laughs) migration as opposed to like traditional sort of settler colonial pioneer culture it just it just challenges the teleology of the west in like a really essential way i think there are chinese um laborers i think in the iron horse that's right yeah but i mean if we were to compare the treatment of it as a historical phenomenon in that film and this film it's just miles and miles apart isn't it these are both fleshed out characters but including them opens up so many more possibilities for thinking about what the West was like. I guess I've been thinking a lot about what language was like at that time in America as well, with these, um, like, sort of non-British or Irish immigrants there. I really want to watch um, The New Land, uh, uh, The the Emigrants. Well, for the large film club, we're going to have to watch both of them, man, the six-hour, like, diptych. Yeah, I don't think this is something that's really spoken about. There must be lots on it, but I think it's just such an interesting subject and the way this film deals with it, I think it's brilliant. The King Lou character, played by Orion Lee, he is brilliant in it. I think it's a composite of different characters in the book. So again, like this is a very conscious decision to construct the character the way that he is, as such like a sort of empathetic presence in, in the film. 
Definitely. He's an amazing character. Like, I'll never forget King Lou. Brilliant name as well. <laughs> Definitely. We're going to be talking about, like, reflexivity within her filmography a lot. But I think compared to Old Joy, which is about, like, the end of, uh, like, a long, long friendship. And this is about the beginning of a very sincere friendship and business partnership. It's just one of the many, many instances of how she's able to, like, work these themes she's interested in so seamlessly into her filmography. And that's why I've really enjoyed binging all her films in the last couple of weeks. Mm. Compared to Roy Anderson or whatever, where I was getting a bit confused, like placing the films and had to draw up like scene lists. Well, I mean, it's just a completely different thing, isn't it? <laughs> of course. I think the experience of going through their filmographies is actually quite comparable in that they're both auteurs, which I guess is something we'll explore more as we go. Just more than that I wanted to discuss about the sort of, I guess, like ethnographic qualities of First Cow, as well as having these two not wasp settler um, <laughs> protagonists. There's a great scene in Toby Jones' sort of house as chief factor where... There are a bunch of Native American characters there. Um, the sort of chief that's there doesn't speak English. And there are, I think, yeah. there are two women there as well. One of them's played by um, Lily Gladstone, who's also in Certain Women. And she's, I think, fantastic in, in that role. Um, it's really a cameo or like a moment in this one, but it just poses it or like sort of introduces lots of like tensions and dynamics that just really enrich the, the film, I think. Definitely. It's funny to think about Lily Gladstone because she puts in such an incredible performance in certain women, despite, again, not saying very much at all. But it was really at the time, I remember it being considered a real like breakout performance, but she hasn't really been given that many roles between certain women and First Cow, which is a bit scandalous to me. Yeah, I did notice her filmography is pretty pithy. Very intense sequence that. Sure, I guess there's just so much going on because they're talking in English about like the administration of law and order and sort of crime and punishment. But then there's a whole other sort of conversation going on in unsubtitled indigenous dialect, which is just mad. While they're munching on this delicious dessert that he doesn't know is from the cow. <laughs> Dramatic irony, if you remember your English GCSE. <laughs> it's that shit. Let's talk about her other American historical film. I mean, all her other films are very grounded in their era, like Old Joy in the Bush era, for example. But Meek's Cutoff from 2010 is set about 20 years after First Cow. But it looks complete. It's set in the desert as opposed to the forest is, I guess, one of the many, many, many. I'm sorry, Reddit didn't use the word dialectic or whatever, but I think <laughs> it is instructional to use in this case. It's just a remarkable film. I think it's the most original Western ever made. I mean, I haven't seen them all, but I can provisionally agree. I think we can take as our sort of starting point Wagon Master here and then just like see the various ways in which it deviates from that sort of teleological framework. Should have been called Wagon Mistress. Brilliant. Um, when I watched this film, I didn't realise that it was about like real historical figures. Meek's cutoff is named after Stephen Meek, a sort of mountain man or whatever who pioneered, is a generous word, I think, uh, this trail through Oregon. He's played by Bruce Greenwood. Solomon Tethero, played by Will Patton, is again a historical figure who's diaries or journals provide a sort of textual account of this i couldn't actually find a copy of it sadly i was desperate to try and find some stuff i did find some other stuff because there are a bunch of diarists 
or diaristic accounts of this, but that one couldn't read. I guess they read it. There is one primary source that is in a really cool way like recreated in the film there's like a piece of uh wood that says lost on it mm. which is um in a museum in oregon but one of the first images you see in this film is paul dano carving the word lost on a piece of wood yeah brilliant i didn't know that it's really interesting that it was a, a real artifact yeah that is great it, it, it deviates then from the historical record in a number of ways. The chief way in which it does so is that Meek led, in reality, like a large trail, right? Like hundreds of people and like loads of them died. In this film, there are literally like seven characters or something, including like a kid. Like it's a very small party. There's three couples. There's Meek, there's the Native American and there's the child. Yeah. Ensemble piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the whole film is just about them being lost. They're lost at the beginning, and they're lost at the end. <laughs> they they could literally be wandering around in circles. Yeah, I guess that's what I mean when I say it deviates so much from Wagon Master, which is teleological or, like, sort of salvational. Like, the narrative is constructed around, like, a deliverance or an arrival or, like, an endpoint, whereas this, like, is so nebulous. So the experience of the film is the experience of the characters and the sort of shifting power dynamics within their party. I guess one of the most interesting and radical things it does is sort of centre both the women in this journey and the Kais Native American that they sort of take hostage, basically, as a sort of guide. There's so many interesting choices that Reichart makes in this film. I think one of the standout things for me is the sound design. I mean, it has a very straightforward, like, feminist interpretation, right? There's loads of scenes where, like, the men are off having a conversation. Clearly, like, mm. they don't talk about shit. None of them know anything. But you can sort of barely hear it. Yeah. Because it is off in the distance and it's recorded with, like, a, a boom, like, near the camera yeah. or whatever. Like, accurate, like, 3D sound, but, like, very non-cinematic. That's so interesting on on numerous levels. Like, in the first instance, I'm thinking of two things that um, I've heard Reichardt talk about. Firstly, like, the aspect ratio, the perspective, is meant to sort of replicate the sort of bonnets that these characters are wearing, which, yeah, like... Yeah, they've got their blinkers on. Right? Yeah. <laughs> which just completely restricts peripheral vision. Also, she referred to the fact that, I guess, the, the guys, or, like, talking about how the actors, like, weren't in the Western that they thought they were making. Right. right. So yeah, there's yeah. this. So the scene that you referenced, where um, when they get to a river and they realise like the salinity's wrong or some shit. It's a salt lake or like it's alkaline. Yeah. So they can't like benefit from it, and they're having to like rethink their whole shit. All the guys have been like summoned over to Meek to like have like a like a conference of like the men, and we're watching it like from the perspective of the women. Um, so that scene where like their dialogue is like completely obfuscated <laughs> it's just funny to me <laughs> sure i think yeah it is but you'd like you wouldn't want to hear the dialogue anyway because well no of course not it would completely negate the it would compound yeah. the frustration more on the sound design like it is about labor as much as any of her other films are and the heavy breathing is such a big thing in this film mm. i think you know mm. as well as like much like ford while with you know if we're still on wagon master this would be like i would kill for this double bill in the cinema, mm. both to see both films projected, but also just for, you know, irony. Well, look, uh, more similarities. They both, like, she did, like, a pioneer camp for the actors of this film, 
where they'd like learn what it was like not only to wear these clothes but to like do things in in them whether it's like walking for 10 miles through the desert or like starting a fire or whatever it's all about the fucking experiential shit you know uh, true Fordian I think we called it LARPing on the Ford Fiesta podcast yeah big time man but you know you feel it a lot more in this film mm. you feel the like struggles and the fact that they built these these wagons they use like these like I guess period accurate muskets yeah and also very importantly something that Kelly Reichardt likes to talk about a lot of these pioneer westerns don't have any oxen in them they got a lot of horses but mm. um, that's another really interesting choice mm. um, by focusing on the oxen and there's also a cute donkey yeah. that belongs to Shirley Henderson's character. Yeah. Also, the square frame is just mad because it's so counterintuitive to, like, all Westerns. Mm. Which wants to show the monumental scope of the landscape, which she does in this film, but only when it's sort of mediated by the sort of restricted feminine gaze. Sure. There's this um, Oxford University, I think it's St. Anne's College, she did like a masterclass there. Yeah, worth listening to. I thought it was sort of shit, but she speaks interestingly. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, <laughs> charlatans, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> There's one bit where she's talking about how like she couldn't shoot the Native American character with like the blue sky behind him. Mm. or shoot looking down from the top of the mountain because if you've seen any western movies you're conditioned to like that very patronizing portrayal of native americans right the shot from like up on the hill looking down at the people yeah is really coded as being from like a threatening first nations perspective mm. which is totally irrelevant to what she's trying to do to this film much like in first cow the native americans dialogue is not subtitled yeah they kind of like imagine what he's saying because he does speak a lot but the difficulty in communication which is mad in opposition to a film i watched yesterday delma davis's broken arrow which is largely considered to be like the first revisionist western mm. which got james stewart um it's progressive in some ways it's also got like one of the most butters like romantic age gaps i've ever seen great and obviously a lot of like white people playing native americans but a big deal in that film is made out of like james stewart being able to speak the tongue mm. and learning the tongue much like john wayne's character in fort apache which i think is a revisionist western but isn't typically thought of as so but obviously they just magically like are speaking english the whole time mm. you know yeah i mean it's a i guess a realist film in that respect and, and time is such an important factor and this is something i wanted to get around to and again that relates to the look of the film and the way the characters move about this space like there are so many mad shots in this film there's an amazing one where they're going across the horizon but so much of it is just whether it's long shots or close ups it is always about their experience <laughs> their experience and like the passage of time and as you said like the sort of manual challenge of this like uh trying to get wagons across fords or all the sort of challenges involved in like trying to go across this terrain they even take on the most beautiful shot in wagon master but ironize it that's sort of like these wagons going over a hill but mm. this is them trying to lower the wagons down a hill mm. and it's utterly painful in this book uh, this study on Kelly Reichardt by Catherine Fusco and Nicole Seymour, which was done for the University of Illinois Press in around the same time as Certain Women. I didn't really fuck with the book, but um, it really conceives of Meek's Cut-Off as like, a crucial example of slow cinema and talks about like Bellatar and Theo Angelopoulos and A Pitch Upon Where It's Ethical and these sorts of people. But I found this film to be really, really snappy 
mostly in the editing, I guess. Mm. I didn't clock a single long take. I guess she uses long takes mostly when characters are traveling in cars. But um, I've seen this film three times, so it really wasn't how I remember it being because it was really vivid and not transcendental at all mm. to me. I think because of, I guess, the slowness or stasis or they're moving, but like they don't get anywhere. So there is a sense of stasis. It's an illusion of slow cinema. I thought Certain Women was, her, ironically, was the film that reminded me most of Belathar, <laughs> which is like quite an urban one. That said, though, there are huge parallels between Meek and Irimiash. <laughs> including time. in the character design and the like bullshit speechifying yeah, of both characters. Big time. Something. Watch Satan Tango, guys. It's fucking sick. <laughs> Certain Women reminded me a lot of Chantal Ackerman. I think she said that on record as well as it being partly a homage to her films. Great filmmaker. As in like Jean Dillman and stuff yes, like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, the sort of quotidian aspects of these films is like super important. One thing I want to talk about then in relation to like time and pace and the way that these films manufacture these qualities, Reichardt edits all these films. She's edited every one of her films herself, which is so important, I think. Apart from River of Grass. Oh, is that right? I guess from Meek's Cut-Off, she's like really set, or even from Old Joy, she's really settled into like sort of these collaborations with um, the cinematographer Christopher Blauvelt, the writer uh, Jonathan Raymond, and lots of recurring people. River of Grass, I feel like, is almost worth looking at separately as like a real artifact of like the, the mid-90s the studio system. Era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she is the one that manufactures all of this, you know, the experience of, you know, she has a lot of control over it and uses it to great effect, I think. I really appreciated the way that, like, distance and time are, like, used in very similar ways and, like, the scale, I guess, going back to, like, the storyboarding elements mm. or just, like, the pre-camera visualisation, like, is so powerful when you're looking at nothing. Mm. Even this tree that you see at the end is, like, shot so incredibly, again, I guess this ties into the sort of James Benning, Peter Hutton. Mm. Although she said in another interview that like someone asked her about James Benning and she said, oh yeah, he's good. But like the last James Benning film I saw was like, I was looking at a tree for two hours and then I saw a tree outside and I realized I would have rather looked at that real tree for two yeah. hours. Yeah, <laughs> I've been that's in the Oxford <laughs> one. And she was like slightly affronted that her film was being compared to the work of James Benning. It's more about the use of landscape though and like nature. And the use of natural light. Yeah, yeah. The sunlight in this film is so punishing, you know, you feel the heat in a way you certainly don't with any of the yeah, Ford like, films, which are shot in a similar manner. It's all natural lighting, I think, uh, like lamps yeah. inside the caravans, campfires, it's all natural. And also yeah. the nighttime sequences in like pretty much all of her films, especially Wendy and Lucy, because that sequence is like very disturbing and like disorientating. But also in this film, like this is why I need to see it in the cinema, because like you're basically you can't see anything in like the nighttime sequences. No, no, you can't. Just while we're talking about this, who is the other artist? Uh, Peter Hutton, who uh, she teaches at Bard College in the States. She teaches film there, as does he. He's an experimental filmmaker. His films are a bit more like distorted, but again, very slow. You're looking at nature. And First Cow is dedicated to him. Right. And outside of filmmaking, I think it's really important to acknowledge these, like, the relationship her films have with, like, other media. I guess we've already spoken about oh, short yeah. stories, whether it's the Raymond one. Certain Women was adapted from three short stories by um, Miley Malloy, an American writer. And painting is, like, so important. Yeah. Frederick Remington, Winslow Homer. They were huge influences on First Cow. Also photography. For example, books by uh, Joel Stonefeld and 
Robert Adam, the American West photographs mm. that she uses as like a source for pretty much all of her films. Mm. And again, that just makes it seem, yeah, it just links it to Ford in my mind because he was so influenced by these Remington images uh-huh. and they really sort of stimulated his films. But the sort of different solutions that are extrapolated from the problem that his image poses is so different, you know, and that's fascinating to me. That's so true. I just want to talk about um, Meek for a bit more. He's played by Bruce Greenwood. The film is like often thought of as an allegory for the Iraq war and George Bush and the sort of fraudulent, like willfully acting on information that doesn't exist. And it's about pretending like the information exists or whatever, Mm. which is super fun. You know, well, it's not fun. It's really scary and depressing. But I laughed at him a lot this time just because he's such a dickhead, you know. And the way that the other characters lose respect for him, there's this one bit where she says, like, is he ignorant or is he just plain evil? And and then another character says, you just can't know. Mm. Yeah. The other thing that I was very aware of, mostly due to Jeff Grace's score and also the presence of Paul Dano, much like these two films that we've talked about, There Will Be Blood by Paul Thomas Anderson, is about looking at where America is now and like trying to trace the ideologies back. And I guess the Daniel Plainview character in there will be blood is quite similar to meek in being a fraud there's one music cue that's used a lot in this film that sounds exactly the same as johnny greenwood's cue i guess this film was made a couple of years after but the influence was definitely felt for me have you seen it no (laughs) um (laughs) good movie I, i mean i will watch it instantly i obviously should watch it um i do like his work but yeah, it just never happened. I watched Meek's Cut Off this morning as a rewatch while I was uh, putting my thoughts together. I didn't notice any music. I don't remember the music in it. It's like the sort of droney violin, like the high drones or whatever. Mm, okay, uh, fair enough. A lot of like bending on the violin and stuff. I consider Kelly Reichardt to be as great a filmmaker as Paul Thomas Anderson, and I want people to fucking catch up, really. Yeah, I back as a Western, this film has one of the great standoffs in any Western I've ever seen, Ugh. even though no gun is fired. I love it. I guess that's the image on the poster. We'll talk about her more, but Michelle Williams, I think, is a brilliant actress mm. in a lot of films, but especially in these. It's funny with Wendy and Lucy, like she was already Oscar nominated and quite popular. And Reichardt was like pretty unsure if she was going to be up for doing the film. They actually wanted to use Sadie Benning, relative of James mm. Benning. But I think using, like, a Hollywood actor, but using extremely, like, Brissonian techniques mm. of, like, you know, mm-hmm. seeing actors as models, it's something I haven't really seen done so well before. One thing I'd say on this is that the sense of interiority in these characters from, well, Old Joy, her second feature, there's not much, like, thought... All the thoughts that the characters have seem to be voiced. From Wendy and Lucy onwards, it's all about interiority, I feel. In River of Grass, for example, her first film, that has a sort of monologue narrative. Yeah, you learn a lot more from the narration in that film than you do from the dialogue between the characters because yeah. they are yeah, terrible yeah. at I communicating. Guess, I guess maybe the, maybe the studio was like, you need to have this. Yeah, I basically what I'm saying is I agree. Michelle Williams's character doesn't have, like, an awful lot of dialogue none of the characters do um but there's still so much going on and still so much complexity the Bresson comparison is really central actually and when we talk about Wendy and Lucy I think that was the one that when I was watching it I was like okay this is like Bobby Bresson um (laughs) 
Yeah, but I guess you're going to do your Armand White and start the the review with the words Robert Preston. There's one moment in Certain Women, which is just one of the best pieces of acting, like gestured Brissonian acting, not like Hollywood acting, where she asks about the sandstone and then her face falls when she realizes that the René Abergenois character isn't listening to her. Yeah. And it's just a phenomenal piece of acting, like one of the best yeah, I've seen dude, in American d- cinema. I love certain women, but we'll talk about that shortly. Should we cut off, Meek's cut off for now? Excellent. Okay. Having spoken about First Cow and Meek's cut off, we're going to carry on our journey through American history via the filmography of Kelly Reichardt with her 1994 debut, River of Grass. A story about Cozy, a young mother in a sort of listless existence who goes on the run with a loser she meets in a bar after mistakenly thinking they've killed somebody. I guess we probably won't dwell on this film too long. For me, it was like a very 90s film. It really reminded me of like Jarmusch. There's a quote from, I think it was in that Oxford talk again, talking about how filmmaking in 93 when, when it was produced was a boys club is the term she uses definitely i think it is a pretty straightforward film and much like you in the way that you succinctly described it it's probably got the least like meat in it in terms of interesting cinematic stuff but it is yeah you said jarmusch it reminded me of like blood simple or raising arizona or even like quentin tarantino you know big time man i feel like it's all part of the same sort of thought world and yeah i I certainly had the Coen brothers in my in my notes as well. Mm-hmm. I guess just because it's like a farce. Yeah, it's zany. <laughs> yeah, zany. <laughs> Pretty nothingy film, to be honest. <sighs> I don't know. There are ho- some early hallmarks of her like style. Definitely, I think the concern with like economic like precariousness is like central to pretty much all of her films. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was saying about Wendy and Lucy, and like that you're very aware of like the lack of money that these people have they're like trying to pawn the dude like robs his mom's record collection to try and pawn it for gas money for example Mm, yeah but i think you know i was i was writing about they live by night yesterday and it is it's like very easy to compare to like badlands or bonnie and clyde or whatever but her films are often about like decline and failure and this is about this couple's like failure to be one of these like american mythological uh, couples on the lamb yeah you know exactly that cool score in this film though her dad's like a forensic investigator and also a jazz drummer mm. and much like i hate to talk about inyaratu again but much like birdman <laughs> the score is largely just like sort of frenetic jazz like freakouts on like unaccompanied drums yeah. which is a cool way to soundtrack a film yeah for sure music plays a big part like she's called cozy after like a jazz drummer i don't know who there are some cool like close-ups of instruments being played towards the yeah. beginning and like i will always enjoy seeing that on screen i think it's like a cool thing to you know put in montage especially in relation to like a soundtrack and i i guess i'll yeah. probably never get bored of that as like a sort of moving image construct <laughs> you haven't seen johnny guitar yet have no, you? no i really oh man i really want to watch it no it's gonna horrify you bruv just if on that on that level does an instrument get broken <laughs> or something no, no, Sterling Hayden is playing a guitar with no strings and he's just like, 
He's playing like a simple like two chord cowboy song, but he's oh moving God, his left dude. hand like up and down the fretboard like the whole time. It's hilarious. Like, is it called um, "Paint Your Wagon"? Is that what it's called? Great movie. I walked into the lounge the other day, and my parents were watching that, and my mum was like, "This is uh, I can't." Oh, she used the funniest word. Like, it wasn't even like dreadful. She was like properly mortified by it. I love it. I, you like Lee Marvin in the films you saw, right? Well, his his singing in this film is atrocious. There's also a song sung by Clint Eastwood called "I Sing to the Trees," which was one of the inspirations behind Turkey by Phil Graves. Great. Uh, <laughs> there's also <laughs> speaking of fake pavement songs, the song "Evergladed," <laughs> the song "Evergladed" by Sammy that plays over the end credits is like. Just interesting to see, because I guess it puts the indie rock and like indie cinema in a sort of lineage that I never really ever think about. Although the producer of the film and the ex-president of Beats are two of the musicians in this like fledgling 90s uh, indie rock band. But I guess they got a major label deal, which is crazy in the sort of post-Nirvana landscape. Anyway, I still like that song. You're probably going to hear a cover on this episode <laughs> which just makes it more beautiful the fact that she cast the real Steven Maltmus in a cameo in First Cow 26 years later you know sure awesome that tune really was Uncanny Valley pavement-esque jams wasn't it it's actually unbelievable and it's not pavement like it's not a pavement tune that rips off the fall it's like one of their more like original with like the really out of time drum fills and like nasty nasty <laughs> rhythm guitar you know but still like major chordy but nasty sounding rhythm guitar mm. cool song I, I think we talked about the song more than the film at this point but <laughs> I'd, I'd recommend river of grass it's a good time it's got some laughs and the last 10 minutes were brilliant i thought if you like st- 90s stuff like true romance i hate it you, well exactly <laughs> like I, this film didn't do much for me but i'm sure some people will enjoy what this film does and coming in at a pithy 76 minutes like Give it a go. A lot of these films that we're about to talk about are quite short as well. Oh, yeah. I guess we've already spoken quite a lot about the role of these, like, indie-adjacent musicians or, like, alt-90s music in these films. But Old Joy, the film she made after River of Grass, 12 years after River of Grass, mm-hmm. she only she made a few shorts um, between then. But Ode, borderline unwatchable, but cool Bonnie Prince Billy instrumental soundtrack. Mm. And also it uses hate speech in a way. Uh, the first line is hate speech, much like the first line of Meek's Cut-Off. Although Meek's Cut-Off has about 15 minutes before you hear any dialogue in it. Mm. But I think those are both very deliberately used in like quite a striking way. That's all i got to say on Ode. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll stick with the features. Old Joy, I guess one of its chief characteristics is the soundtrack by Yola Sengo, which appears on their album They Shoot, We Score. Is, it? is that what it's called? Yes, that's right. The Matador connection. Lots of like, I mean, you guys know what Yola Tango sound like. I fucking love Yola Tango. <laughs> and it's like, oh, this is the one that made me think of Portlandia the most, I guess. Um, <laughs> Dude, 100%, man. I think that, I honestly think the Yola Tango score was a bit phoned in. It sounds exactly like an instrumental version of Sun King by the Beatles. <laughs> um, but it sounds like they recorded it in about 15 minutes and just sent it on. I think they're geniuses and like I got nothing bad to say about them ever. But <laughs> I didn't actually like the Yola Tango score for Old Joy. But I love Will Oldham. Yeah, I mean, it's a masterclass performance. Um, he plays mm. a guy who invites like an old friend who he's sort of fallen out of contact with on a camping trip. That other guy is played by Daniel London. I don't think I've really seen him in anything. Um, he brings... Uh, nah, he's got a great face, though. Yeah, for sure. 
for sure. Um, he brings uh, his dog, played masterfully by Lucy. Lucy Rycott, yep. Yeah, and um, yeah, he like leaves his pregnant wife behind and they go on a camping trip for the weekend. I think that's a pretty hilarious scene, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like very much like, oh, I mean, of course you can come if you want to. Like, oh, wait, I guess you are pregnant. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, see you on Monday. Um, I guess what you said about Portlandia, I mean, like, and also about River of Grass being, like, very dated. I think this film is equally dated. Mm. I guess it anticipates Portlandia. It's also very grounded in the second Bush presidency, Mm -hmm. or the second term of the second Bush presidency. Um, The the dude's listening to Air America, which doesn't exist anymore. I think it was only on the air for about 18 months, but I guess it's sort of a proto, like, lib podcast. Yeah, well, big time, man. They're talking about, like, Lyndon Johnson's, like, law and order sort of proto-fash yeah. neoliberal philosophy and stuff like that. You uh, yeah. know. It's, but it's, I love it. I love it. Yeah. It's, it's like, well, they say America's a two-party system. I wish it was a two-party system. Yeah, you know? I mean, it literally <laughs> sounds like Labour at the moment. Yeah, but 100%. It, it does lend a lot of interesting sort of or historically specific context to what we're seeing. Yeah, and it marks out the Daniel London character is a really dead guy, you know, if he's driving around listening to this shit. Yeah, 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 living in the burps. <laughs> in opposition to the beautiful characterization of Will Oldham's cut. Yeah, uh, how would you describe his character? I guess he is like a vagabond man, yeah, but yeah, you yeah. don't, that's not made explicit in the film. Although the last shot of this film is very, very powerful, actually, where he encounters like a way older version of himself essentially Mm. i think or like possibly again talking about that precariousness but like some christmas carol shit where he like definitely gives a bit of change to a homeless guy but the way he he enters this film like pulling a trailer and he's like hey i borrowed a tv (laughs) yeah yeah great oh oh, we can use my car if you want (laughs) (laughs) there's one bit where he's like oh a while back i went to this crazy beach party everyone's jumping over fire and shit uh, you should yeah. have been there, man. <laughs> That's the sort of character. Like, I think while we're on the dialogue, I mean, he's clearly like a massive fucking stoner. Like, he's smoking weed in pretty much every yeah. scene in this film, which I I love to see. But yeah. um, I feel like films rarely capture the element of being stoned that like limits your like storytelling capabilities. Mm. But he's like. The stuff he's saying is so hard to follow, man. Like when he's talking about the universe being, oh I've got this theory, like the universe is in the shape of a raindrop and it's just constantly falling yeah. or whatever. And he's like, I don't have any numbers for them, but <laughs> I fundamentally understand it. <laughs> yeah. Which is really funny to me. Um, He has a cameo in Wendy and Lucy right at the start yeah. as one of these crust punks. Ridiculously, he receives second billing in Wendy and Lucy. Like, they shouldn't have even fucking bothered. That's bonkers, yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous. But in that film, he tells this hilarious story and he's like a completely different character. I guess because he's not smoking weed is the idea. Because mm. um, he can't afford it. Because he's just like going a mile a minute. Whereas in this, like, it's almost painful to hear him speak anytime mm. he talks, at least to me. But for me, the film is mostly about the silences and it's about two friends who like used to be really close and have like drifted apart. Um, There's a moment where like Kurt brings it up like, oh, do you think Oh, I wish we could like be better friends? And then he's then Daniel London's character is like, what do you mean, man? We're cool. Mm. And then they don't talk about it again. They barely speak for the rest of the film. You're just watching them like hang out in silence. Yeah, I, I guess earlier I did it sort of dirty by saying all the expositions through dialogue, all the meaning making is through dialogue because like, yeah, the silence is so important, especially on the Daniel London character's part. 
But there are also important bits of monologue, I guess, from Bill Oldham's character as the film goes on, especially alluding to the title of the film, Old Joy, where he says, like, he's recounting a dream or whatever, and basically Old Joy is is sorrow. It's like the sort of Mm. philosophy aspect. I don't know. It's about decline and decay again. It's about about what happens to joy over time or whatever, right? I think A Ghost Story by David Lowery is the worst film I've ever seen. (laughs) And that features Will Oldham. I mean, that film rips off Stray Dogs so hard, but also, I guess, kind of rips off this film because the middle sequence of it is like Will Oldham delivering this like bullshit monologue once again. It's unwatchable. I really fucking hate that shit, to be honest. I don't like listening to Robbie Collin talk about like Derrida (laughs) in the context of this film. I was just like shaking my head, like chewing my fucking face off, like hating it but um there just one more like it is anticipatory of portlandia and i think it's hard to watch this film without thinking about portlandia there's a scene where he's like i've got these cool records i think i'm gonna go sell them at sids yeah i wanted to talk about that and he's like sids isn't there man it's like a smoothie shop now which is like the kind of shit you'd expect people in portland to talk about in a Mm. that's what like carrie brownstein and fred armison satirized so well but it's just like straightforward in this film you know it's like not ironic it's just like which is very dated to feature in a serious film. Yeah, for sure. I feel like it has quite like a naive approach to gentrification, I think. But I guess mm. it the film doesn't, I don't think. I think the characters the characters whose lives it's sort of chronicling do. And maybe that's an important distinction right. to make. And that's why it would have potentially been instructive to look at the source novella as well, because I would be interested to see how these characters are constructed in words, you know beyond their monologues in the same way that Reichardt adapted uh Raymond's like long novel and really condensed it I think the two short stories that this and Wendy and Lucy are based on are about 10 pages each Mm. it's like burning or something and the fact that she in a similar way to Bellatar really extends that narrative through like duration and you know spaces and uh slow cinema approaches Mm. which I think are way more ascribable to these films than to Meek's cut off. I really like Old Joy, man. Uh, it was cool to revisit because I watched it about 10 years ago and my perspective on it had really changed with age, like happens with, I guess, most movies. <laughs> but I did feel it, you know. I would say that if you're a newcomer to the work of Kenny Reichardt, the film we're about to talk about is where I'd start. 100%. I was drunk at the pulpit. After Old Joy, she made Wendy and Lucy, starring Michelle Williams and her dog, Lucy. Similar to Old Joy, it sort of dramatises this process of gentrification. It's also set in Oregon, as most of her films are. And it opens with, apart from the shot you mentioned, one of the first sequences is Wendy, who's like a proper member of the Precariat. She's on her way to Alaska uh, for a job in the cannery, and I guess she's like trying to run away from something. But it opens with her like... 1988 Honda breaking down in front of this like very very like Portlandia style like turquoise hipster house and with a guy on the porch like out of focus and you can just imagine it like doing a little rack focus and then it's Fred Armisen like with a little goatee or something like 
that doesn't happen. I thought exactly the same thing, but it's really interesting how it engages with the total other side of that question compared to like, mm. I mean, I feel like in Old Joy, like nature is used for like luxury, whereas like the character, when she can't sleep in her car anymore, she has to sleep in the forest because she's broke. I imagine Simon Lang must have watched it before he made Stray Dogs because he shoots the supermarket in a very similar way in that film. And they're both films about like the iniquity of like unemployment mm. or underemployment, the unemployment crisis in America at a time when Portland was being really gentrified. You know, there's a talk about, oh, there used to be, a, I don't know if it's set in Portland actually, but it's set in like a similar sort of place in mm. Oregon. There's a chat about like, oh, there used to be a mill here, but that closed down a long, long time ago. And a character is reading Sometimes a Great Notion by Ken Kesey, a book about organized mm. labor in Oregon and a strike. But this film is so, so far beneath the poverty line mm. that it's all about her being alienated from all these other characters. The only character who like extends any sympathy is this like parking attendant. I guess he's a cop. He looks exactly like Donald Trump without like, the makeup <laughs> and like cosmetics and stuff. Like if Donald Trump didn't have yeah. any of that and was just a normal person, he would look exactly he like wasn't this brand, in a weird which way. Which is really yeah. ironic. Yeah. That shit also reminded me of Naked, <laughs> in which David Thewlis's like sort of very marginal character ends up having DMCs with this uh security guard in a London office. Very different like sort of philosophies though and very different characters than Michelle Williams and David Thewlis characters. So you know, that's about the limit of I guess it's just how these like very marginal characters like may be able to like strike up a rapport with people, but yeah. like so many of the like characters that just pass through in this are very much like from the why don't you take your C V to the fucking high street school of socioeconomic thought, you know? A hundred percent. There's the like total jobs worth kid who like causes wendy to lose her dog mm. he like busts her for shoplifting some dog food mm. and he's like oh well why do you have a dog if you can't afford to feed it yeah, or whatever. and yeah. like just the the merciless like lack of understanding and lack of like integration in society is really mad to bear witness to in this film but it also seems to tie into the reception of this film because in that book on kelly reichardt that i mentioned earlier from the university of illinois press that was a big part of the reception of the movie, which is staggering to me how a film, it goes beyond empathy because it's just direct portrayal. Mm. But if someone could watch this film and come out asking those kinds of questions about the protagonist, fuck them, man. They're a dickhead. Like, no two ways about it. For sure. For sure. I mean, you'd have to be very callous. I think the way it represents these issues I alluded to earlier, I, d I did think was extremely Brissonian, like, I guess minimalism is a term that's used to describe her work quite a lot, as well as, like, slow cinema. I guess both of them have their own issues as, like, categories of analysis. But I think this, but also, you know, I mentioned neorealism earlier, and this film has a very similar plot to mm, The Bicycle mm, Thieves by De Sica. Yeah, yeah. And also Umberto D, which is about caring for mm. a dog and, like, the dog being taken away. But in that, like, when he loses his bicycle, he can't work. And in this film, when her, like, car breaks down, she can't afford to repair it. She's fucked. Yeah, yeah. Like, she's totally fucked. Yeah. And I guess, like, the other characters, like, again, that's, like, something to do with that, like, gap between, like, the sort of Portlandia milieu and, like, the the people that are, like, on the periphery. But all the dialogue in this film is incredibly functional. There's no philosophizing in this film whatsoever. You know, it's sure. all, like, can you do this? Yes or no? Yeah, yeah. Can I use your phone? Can I? Yeah. 
I guess that's what I thought it was like a man escaped or some shit, you know, because it's like, sure, does what it says on the tin, you know, and uh, just puts the pieces together. Definitely. One of the things I love about Kelly Reichardt's style is how much time you spend like in the frame, either after the character exits the frame and you're just there to soak up the fauna, to quote Stephen Maltmus, or before, you know, in the scene with the mechanic where she goes in, you see the dude like having some very amicable conversation with like someone else about like betting. Mm. And then when she comes in, he just like switches off and he's just like incredibly curt with her and like doesn't want to help her out and ends up trying to get her to pay $2,400 or whatever. I saw Nomadland this weekend, which I would just, I hate to like, you know, pit female filmmakers against each other but like it just felt like a, a fake Kelly Reichardt film to me so much like look at thisness of like the skies and like the beauty of nature but it is again about nomadic like houseless people mm. or whatever I'm really not prepared for that film to win Oscars because it is so lib mm. and so so fucking bait to be honest yeah I, I need to watch it to... I'm sure whereas Francis McDormand like I really didn't buy it where it's like neorealist casting where like everyone else is like a real person playing themselves like in a Pedro Costa mm. movie but then the only characters you spend like any time with are Francis McDormand and David Strathairn the only two actors in the film also every scene of that film is like two minutes long so it's just like you're watching like a fucking Harry Potter movie or something <laughs> like that whereas Wendy and Lucy you feel every second of every scene mm. and is structured so deliberately despite being really naturalistic again like thinking about Meek's cut off that really relates to both the question of like the sort of materiality of the character's existence and Kelly Reichardt's editing like really goes hand in hand and tells or conveys a lot of, like through the images more than like dialogue even if the dialogue like conveys these like positions as well it's interesting to think about this film in the context of westerns as well or like mm. destiny you know mm. because she is like trying to make everything happen for herself nothing is like granted to her there's a really painful phone call home sure yeah where her family members clearly don't give a fuck about her she has no social security is what i'm trying to say and you feel it's a really really powerful portrayal of that to be honest i mean bresson is like the main the main like analogue for me, but what a performance from mm. Michelle Williams in this film. Honestly, like I think this film's a masterpiece. I really have a hard time picking between this first cow and Meek's cut off as like my favourite Kelly Rycott film. Mm. But just unforgettable, man, honestly. And the gender dynamics are like very uh they're right there, but also the dialogue is not like doesn't telegraph that theme or whatever. Mm. But I guess when you see like Bonnie Prince Billy talk about like this like hundred thousand dollar <laughs> disaster in alaska that he like facilitated but he's like but it's fine i'm down here with my buddies <laughs> yeah, like it's oh cool like whereas like if this character loses six dollars like when um the donald trump guy gives her six dollars i cried like mm. how could a film make you cry over six dollars i've never seen that happen mm. before like it's a mad film wendy and lucy yeah I'd, i really thought it was sensational and i think a really good starting place if you're trying to get involved with these films as well it's jokes that people like Iris Axe and like Wash Westmoreland are like listed in the special thanks for this film. Um, after the credits, you know, like to to consider that sort of style of filmmaking as like a movement mm. or whatever, of which Kelly Reichardt is definitely the first and foremost in America today. On the DVD, I got to look at the posters and I know I said like Will Oldham receiving second billing is scandalous, but do you want to hear the taglines they use for this film? Oh, I'd love to. 
the road can be a lonely place without a friend to guide you. Who's the friend? The or, security guard or the dog that she loses a third I of think the it's way the, through the film? I think it's the dog. <laughs> okay, what's the next one? <laughs> and the other one is, on the long road, friendship is everything. Ugh. Like Same these, message, same missing of the point. These PR people don't even watch the fucking movies, man. Honestly, no, no way yeah, I mean. can you watch that film. <laughs> <laughs> I think they literally must have just seen the poster of her of the dog and been like, yeah, sounds good, yeah. Oh, <laughs> when you got a dog, everything's gonna be just all right. <laughs> Working on our night moves Trying to make some sweet front page dropping news Working on our night moves In the summertime between Wendy and Lucy and the next film, she did make Meek's Cut-Off, a film about dryness and the desert landscape. But this is the next film, chronologically, or like historic, <laughs> historio-chronologically speaking. And it opens with, um, it's about a dam and it's about the water supply and it opens with like bursts and bursts of water. But mm. that's probably the most interesting thing about this film. Mm. I think it's a sort of unofficial adaptation of this American book from the 70s, um, The Monkey Wrench Gang. N- neither of us have read it, but mm-hmm. that's like, a, I think, like a sort of foundational, like eco-terrorist narrative is the sort of main thing. I think there are lots of similarities between the plot. And there was actually a lawsuit because it's like basically a ripoff of, of that. Damn. Yeah, exactly. They blow it up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg and uh, Dakota Fanning and um, Peter Sarsgaard play like a sort of trio of sort of environmental activists that commit to blowing up a dam. The tension, I guess, surrounds like the ethics and sort of praxis of that decision. One thing I did like about it, which is, I guess we there's a lot to talk about, but one thing I liked is that like so much of it centers on this act of blowing up the dam, but like Reichardt refrains from the sort of gratuitous display that other directors might revel in, the explosion itself. Great piece of sound design. Yeah, for sure. You spoke about how her car scenes um, are the most like sort of slow cinema aspects of, of her films. And this is like, they're just driving, they've stopped talking, the camera is like fixed on the dashboard looking out at them basically or looking back at them rather, and then just in the background you hear the explosion. That's like the action. (laughs) And then the rest of it is like, I guess, like sort of psychological drama. Although there is a sort of violent denim, but that's also handled in like a sort of almost offhand, flippant way, which sort of goes against the sort of dramatic conventions of other action films. It's definitely the most like action movie film that she's made. And the most Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. But it's still very deflated and depressive, you know, which reminded me all throughout this film, but especially in the second half of the like late films of Jean-Pierre Melville, especially Le Circle Rouge for mm. the sort of police checkpoint mm. sequence. Because it is very tightly wound and like intense. It's like a thriller film in the same way that that, even though Circle Rouge, like compared to films at the time were like, it was incredibly muted and like mm. slow and painful, much like this film. I think it's a good thriller. Yeah. But apart from that, is there's a lot of counterintuitive elements to it when you're like comparing it to the rest of Kelly Reichardt's filmography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just has a completely different vibe. Uh, it has like sort of pulsing electronic music. Yeah, that was a bit whack. <laughs> a different aesthetic. I think this is the first digital feature she made. 
and I don't know, it just, it retains a lot of the sort of aesthetic, like sort of temporal qualities of her earlier work and later work as well. But for me, I, it just didn't click as much. It's way slicker than the other films. And although it looks at like a sort of subset of society in the era of America that like preoccupies her work, I don't know, it was just way more like Joanna Hogg, basically, and I didn't fuck with it. I totally feel that comparison. I was thinking exactly the same thing. I think just for the, you know, there's a bourgeois character in certain women as well. We'll get to it. But I just thought these characters were insufferable, like from the Mm. jump. Like I know they're racked with guilt Mm -hmm. and like there's all sorts of like interesting sort of spiritual elements to that or the way it's like represented in film. Mm. But I just loathe the characters, man. Like all of them. You're with Jesse Eisenberg pretty much the whole film. And I think he puts in a really good performance, actually, yeah. in this film. I think he's a really good actor, especially in the second half of the film. I mean, the whole film is like about dread. They know that it's going to go really, really wrong. Yeah. You know yeah. that it's going to go really, really wrong for them from the very start. The second half is all prang. Yeah, his mental like disintegration is really well handled, mm. especially when he goes back to the sort of like hippie ranch that he like works mm-hmm. on slash lives on, which looks like a really nice place to live. <laughs> and all the other characters are just like living there like totally inconsequential existences and like he can't tell them about where he's been and what he's just done and as they discover it their like tone shifts among them but throughout the whole film you're like in his head a bit like Raskolnikov the protagonist of Crime and Punishment or something like that right but there's no moral framework here because it's so like post anything like it's bereft of meaning There is a critical <laughs> voice of the character, or towards the characters. James Legros, he's yeah. like the sort of head of the commune. And after they blow up the dam and Jesse Osmo's just like loitering in the kitchen, they're reading the newspaper and like discussing it. Um, and he's like, oh, like, there's no point. Like, so futile, basically, because to actually like change anything... Like, you can't change anything by blowing up one dam. You either need to commit to, like, a full-on program of disruption or, like, go through other channels of resistance. Yeah, because there's seven other dams on this yeah. river. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, it's just that I never got on side, and I guess you never got on side of their characters, of, of the protagonists, because they suck. Yeah, but it's still handled. I, that's, I'm okay with that. Yeah, One of my but... favourite films is Crimes and Misdemeanors by Woody Allen, which you haven't seen yet, right? No, not yet. That has a similar sort of aspect of dread and guilt. And they feel quite similar, actually. But in that film, he fucking gets away with it. (laughs) Mm. I feel like my analysis here is so problematic because, like, my issue with it is not that, like, I didn't like the characters. Like, you can like something with a reprehensible character and it be successful. I guess it's the thing with Joanna Hogg where it makes me uncomfortable because I don't feel like it's there's enough reflexivity, potentially. And maybe that always has to come from within and, like, it's a fault on my part that, like, it didn't click for me here. I struggle to analyse this one. For me, it was certainly my least favourite, though. I'll just put it down to being, like, the most mainstream. (laughs) Sure. Fair play, man. I thought it's still a really, really good movie, to be honest. It is the most different to her other films, even more so than River of Grass. And the, like, rural bourgeoisness is, like, really overwhelming, even compared to the middle section of certain women. But... I think it's still a really, really well-made film. And I think if she wanted to make like high-budget Hollywood like thrillers, her sort of editing language lends itself really well to it. But she clearly doesn't want to do that. Um, Kelly Reichardt and Todd Haynes have like 
a close relationship i think as like you know sort of co-producers yeah. of each other's projects and like you know they're friends yeah. they're like in the same circle or whatever i think in my head there's something that connects night moves and dark waters both films that i just like struggled to respond to i don't know how to formulate it i think dark waters is a brilliant film i think it's way better than this i know you loved it but yeah because that film is about like the victims of the corporations as opposed to people who are taking on the corporation like using their own hands as opposed to using the law Mm. um it's just less analytical and rigorous and structural and more just about the experience of these like college students it's interesting that dakota fanning's character is like loaded right and like her dad is unwittingly bankrolling this Mm. whole enterprise which again makes me think of the hog but at least they acknowledge that and it's a big part of the film as opposed to just like an unacknowledged thing which it would be in a film made by like a far less economically aware filmmaker than kelly reichardt her next film certain women also has some like very recognizable actors in it beyond just michelle williams it's got kristen stewart it's got laura dern everyone's faves Mm. including my faves but this film is really remarkable i think actually Mm. i saved this one for last of the features to watch and i loved it you said earlier that wendy and lucy Meeks cut off and first cow are your favourites. As much as I love Wendy and Lucy, I think it's certain women sort of pips it for me. Sure. It's a collection of stories depicting the lives of uh, certain women in Montana. I don't really know the geography. Is that just like the other side of the mountain? It's, What's the deal? Yeah, it's like a couple of a couple of states to the right <laughs> and the north the north east. <laughs> Fuck, I can't believe I forgot. Mm. Uh, (laughs) so laura dern and jared harris feature in in one of these stories laura dern plays a lawyer and jared harris who i guess people might know from like mad men Mm -hmm. chernobyl or one of my favorite tv shows of all time the terror i honestly I'm still too scared to watch it, man. All the time. I, I, I don't think it's I'll fire, ever get around like, to it. I'm too scared of polar bears, honestly. I don't. I just can't face it. You know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just a sensational work of art. Anyway, um, he plays like a sort of employee that's like lost out on like sort of labor, sort of related conflict with his uh, employer. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, I'm just going to shoot everyone. It's, it's reminded me of like Alpha Papa or something. Right. <laughs> that, that scenario. You still feel he's not like the villain of the piece, though, because you still have an immense amount of empathy for him and how he's been done so dirty by his employer and how like his his boss is like his job has like fucked up his life and he's got no chance of like yeah. sorting it out. Although there is an interesting element to it where like he's always beneath the surface like very threatening to his lawyer played by Laura Dern like he's always pressing her he's Mm. always turning up unannounced at her office and she keeps on telling him like oh there's no way you can get anything more out of this and he doesn't really listen to her but then when like her male co-worker tells him that he's like oh damn okay fair enough which is Mm. one of those instances like in Meek's cutoff that is just like it doesn't need to be like telegraphed but it's like a very deliberate piece of storytelling. I mean, in essence, that is what this film is about, Mm -hmm. about um, a selection of women's experiences in um, modern America being snubbed, slighted or silenced in various ways. 
So, as you said in the first one, Laura Dern's lawyer character faces gender bias in the course of her work through both her male colleagues and clients. Mm. Just to outline the other ones very briefly, then there are three main stories. That's the first one. In the second one, Michelle Williams plays a woman who's trying to build a house. She's specifically like hallmarked as like the breadwinner of this family as well. She's trying to like build a house in the countryside using some like old, the old like sandstone native stone is the the word she uses which is yeah oh my god vintage rocks from the old schoolhouse the way these characters are introduced is amazing like i guess the first segment is shot on 16 millimeter and this is shot on digital or whatever but it looks like fucking green screen when you see her like emerging out of the woods like in this shot it's too perfectly composed like Mm. this just like one of the best shots in kelly reichardt's filmography i think just for the way she uses the location is just mind-blowing. But, like, they're introduced as glamping in this, like, enormous tent. Like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Much like Bill Oldham in Old Joy saying he's going to take take the TV on holiday or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> just what the point I was going to make was, uh, you've actually referred to it earlier, how Michelle Williams' character in this is, like, ultimately, like, overlooked and ignored by René Abjone's character who, like, lives on the property where the stones of the old settler schoolhouse, like, are piled up. Mm -hmm. And, like, they ultimately get the stones, but, like, her experience of that interaction is, like, one of, like, marginalisation and, like, being looked down on, basically. It's really interesting, man, because there's this sort of interpretive tension in there where you don't know how deeply he's suffering from, like, Alzheimer's, right? Mm. Where, like, the problems in communication you can interpret in, like, two very different ways. This time around, I thought it was pretty painful because he is more direct with the James LaGrosse character in answering his questions. But you feel like he's, he's, like, losing his mind, you know, and he's, like, not able to, like, string two thoughts together as well as he used to be. So there's an element of, like, humouring to it. Yeah. But also they have this, like, incredible moment of communion that made me cry where he's, like, talking about the bird song, and then she, like, makes this, like, stupid joke, and he, like, laughs at it after, like, 20 minutes of, like, not communicating with her. Mm. This, like, middle sequence is, like, incredible filmmaking, I think, and incredible acting, like, from everyone involved. Mm. I really, really think it's a high point of her filmography. Honestly, each of these stories I found deeply affecting. Mm. This one I thought was especially interesting, I guess, for incorporating, like, the sort of heritage, like the rocks are such like an interesting like texturing device for thinking about the sort of experience of the characters and their relation to the space, which is like such an important theme throughout her work. And, you know, the way like humans or settlers interface with land and... Yeah, I just thought it dealt with that so well. Yeah, it's it's eco-filmmaking. Like, it's... Uh, well, sure. In the same way that Peter Hutton makes films, but through a completely different lens which is just you know really impressive mm. we can go back and talk about the rest of these because they're so rich yeah. but the last one lily gladstone who plays the native american lady in toby jones's house and first cow plays like sort of lonely ranch hand that starts going to sort of adult learning classes taught by kristen stewart's I, I guess like bougie like attorney character oh, she's like she's like finishing her law degree or whatever yeah she's like accidentally ended up like having to travel like 300 miles to teach this night class yeah. and oh my gosh thought this one was like so painful and yeah man heartfelt a depiction of alienation yeah because the 
the, yeah, the Lily Gladstone so character deep. is like clearly in love with her, right? Or maybe not, but I yeah. think there's like a no. I think I think that's like that is it, isn't it? Or at the very least, just like find some sort of like connection with her and like you know, but it's not reciprocated. You know, like yeah, exactly. Kristen Stewart feels like awkward about it and like goes for a horse ride with her just because she's like, yeah, all right, fucking yeah, okay. Yeah, you want to do this thing yeah. again? Like... And one of the last shots is um, Lily Gladstone's character, like sort of just working in the stable. Mm. It's like a very like classically framed, like quite symmetrical, like sort of almost like stagey depiction of this like stable corridor, and it's like inviting almost someone to like walk into the frame, i.e., Kristen Stewart's character for some sort of like in a rom com. Sure. Kristen's character would have like come in like furtively come in it just lingers on this like experience of like solitude or loneliness in the most heart-wrenching way like it's so painful and Lily Gladstone like communicates that with so little like it's incredible actually I think Reichardt says like these stories aren't really connected they just appear in the same sort of short story collection but she wanted to make it like as loose as possible although there are the connect- uh, something I didn't clock the first time. Did you clock the connection between the Michelle Williams story and the Laura Dern story? Um, oh yeah, Laura Dern's fucking her husband. Yeah, man. I didn't I didn't clock that the first time I saw this film or whatever, but that's the first like I mean, it's very subtly handled. Yeah. Like there's no it's literally just in the first scene that that actor appears and I was only like, Oh, we saw him earlier and now he's Michelle Williams' husband. Like there's no like him sending her a text, the words of which you know, like transcribed onto the screen or something. Or like the shallows or something. Like, yeah. <laughs> just like very subtly handled. No, true. But I thought, again, this is why minimalism is like one of the most powerful tools of filmmaking, I think, because like these moments are just like, we'll have you thinking about them for fucking days and days, you know. Mm. Yeah, I, as I said, I, I just, I really did find this film very affecting. And then when at the end, when it was dedicated to Lucy, man. Oh my God. <laughs> I was already done in by that point, and that was like, oh my god. <laughs> I think I'm about to cry on the Film Grades podcast for the first time, man. That's fucked yeah. up. <laughs> but again, like as with all our other films, like location scouting is a huge element to the film, and like mm. the way the urban landscape is delineated as like communal space. Mm. In just a really masterful way. The horse vignette really sort of hammered that home as well. Like that like interface between like nature and adult learning institutions, you know, as the most like specific form of like civilization. Fuck man, I thought this film was brilliant. I guess it also reminded me of Hanukkah was something I wanted to know. Sure. What code unknown or Yeah, but also just that general tone of like I guess just as like very acute um observational and the use of time as well like yeah. like letting things play out and like challenging expectation it is narratively satisfying certain women but like it's a, i think it goes against the sort of conventions of like resolution in like a very affecting way kelly reichardt talks about like the slowness of violence and the slowness of emergency as like a process as opposed to like a cinematic event in her films and i think mm. that's a really big part of all of these films, but especially in certain women, like the first segment with Laura Dern, there aren't any like turn on a dime moments in it, really. It's just like a very gradual experience. Mm. And same on the other side of the coin, like with, sorry, dime coin, on the other side of it, like with <laughs> Michelle Williams's segment, like they don't really have anything to lose 
in this film. There's no like precarity or whatever. But you feel like the societal implications are like super text throughout. Mm. There's not really much to wrap it up because this is such a reflexive, like solid filmography. This has been a great one to binge because I think they are all part of both a really original and unique filmmaking process that really resists characterization. I mean, we've talked about slow cinema and neorealism and minimalism and ecological cinema. Mm. But she's a really unique filmmaker, I think, and one of the best working today. I'll watch any of these films any day as well. I think there's like yeah. four out of eight of them are masterpieces. <laughs> Three of the other ones are very good. Yeah, oh, that's a bit of a silly question. But if someone is listening that has not seen any of these films and they've stuck through all the discussion of the minutiae of the plot points, the endings of these films, yada yada, what film should they watch first, Emmett? First Cow. Yeah, good shout. It's the best film of 2021. It's I, I can't see anything better coming out. I can't wait to watch it again. Mm. I can't wait to see it in a cinema. Oh my God. Can't fucking wait. I'll see you there. Yeah, 100%. Honestly, First Cow, it's been promoed for so long now. Yeah. On that A24 tip, you know. Well, yeah, exactly. Been seeing posters for it, stills for it, in like Sight and Sound, on like Letterboxd, for what feels like forever. And I really wanted to hold out and watch it in the cinema, but nature calls, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Film Grays. Follow us on Instagram. We've got a new account. You should watch all of these movies because they're all really, really good. Yeah, please do. Please do. And listen to her interviews because she's a really brilliant speaker about her own work, I think. And she's got a nice voice. Like, she seems fucking cool, to be honest. Yeah, I find her extremely endearing in the interviews. Yeah. Uh, We'll be back soon. We're going to have a Patreon soon. Yeah, we're going to do Cinema of 1921 and Irish language cinema coming up in the pipeline. So don't unsubscribe yes yeah stay tuned i've been emmett i'm sam thanks a lot lots of love Red Roots